Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. Are you ready to make America great again? Bernie Sanders doesn't get it. Hillary Clinton doesn't get it. Barack Obama, he really don't get it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. Donald Trump has a lot of work to do telling us what he's going to do specifically. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. And the reason is because I have a lot of faith in the American people. Welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the proud Bulgarian Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So, no more Cruz, no more Kasich. Contrary to what you might have heard on this show a few weeks ago, Donald Trump is, barring unforeseen circumstances, going to be the 2016 Republican nominee for president. Can I just say how fucking shameful that is? Before now, I don't think I've ever been truly embarrassed to be an American. Today, I am. I didn't think this could happen here. We're going to be debating how it did happen for decades to come, even assuming that Trump loses in November. But the more immediate question is one we should all be putting in the most aggressive way possible to our Republican friends, family, and elected officials. Which side are you on? Are you for our orange-haired, homegrown oligarch, or for the only realistic alternative, which is Hillary Clinton? You now have to make a choice between loyalty to your party and loyalty to your country. What's it going to be? Republican politicians need to understand that the decisions they make now are going to affect how people see them for the rest of their careers, how their children and grandchildren will view them, how history will view them. Some of them have already shown us what they're made of. The Vichy Republicans like Chris Christie and Newt Gingrich were at the head of the line to spit-polish Mr. Trump's shoes. On the other side, there are the courageous, principled Republicans who say they won't support Trump under any circumstances. There's a list in Slate today that includes South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham and, well, some other people you probably haven't heard of. I have high hopes still for Mitt Romney, John McCain, and maybe even Jeb Bush. They should know that their reputations are on the line and that the world is watching. By the way, I borrowed that phrase, proud vulgarian, from Slate's critic at large, Steve Metcalf, who came up with it when I interviewed him for today's show. We talked about the ways that Trump is and isn't a typical baby boomer. In a minute, that conversation. But first, it's time for the tweets. Wow, what a great evening we had. So interesting that Sanders beat crooked Hillary. The dysfunctional system is totally rigged against him. We are now at 1,001 delegates. We will win on the first ballot and are not wasting time and effort on other ballots because system is rigged. Wow. Lying Ted Cruz really went wacko today. Made all sorts of crazy charges. Can't function under pressure. Not very presidential. Sad. I watched 
Senator Graham at Face the Nation. Why don't they say I ran him out of the race like a little boy? And in the end, he had no support. My guest today is Steve Metcalf. He's Slate's critic at large and the author of a forthcoming book about the 1980s. Hey, Steve, welcome. Hey, Jacob. Thank you so much for having me on. So you wrote a terrific article in Slate this week about Donald Trump as a baby boomer, which is a really interesting way to think about him. But I wanted to start just by asking you, since you've been working on this book, about Trump as a representative figure of the 1980s. Is he sort of the pure 80s man? He's almost as pure as it comes. And funnily enough, when I was first conceiving my book and maybe even through the proposal phase, I thought Trump was going to be a character. And I cut him out because he was such a caricature in a way, and he was such a sort of steroidal version of the 80s archetype. He could only help to make my argument absurdly overdrawn. I mean, he was just so ridiculous and also in some ways so anachronistic I didn't want to write a book that seemed so rooted in the 80s that it was a nostalgia trip of some kind. I was trying to do, as they now say, an archaeology of the present. And Trump seemed so rooted in the past, uh, so out of something like Bonfire of the Vanities or Spy magazine, that he he was almost kind of irrelevant and, you know, jokes on me, right? He's now the most prominent <laughs> in America. But let's, let's talk about what that means a little bit. I mean, unpack that for me, that he is this epitome of the 80s. The, the 80s values is that he, it's the, the naked pursuit of money and power and ambition and, and fame when in previous decades you had to go at those things in a more subtle or veiled way. Yeah, I would say certainly up through the 60s when it started to get troubled by, in part, the counterculture and the rise of youth culture. You know, the WASP style was kind of the default style in American life, and it wasn't limited to people who were specifically WASPs. There was a style of restraint, even though it might have been rooted in hypocrisy uh, or it might be veiling self-interest. There was nonetheless a public pretense to some notion of you know, civic society, the public good, personal restraint, and money kind of as a possible byproduct of one's pursuit of moral, aesthetic, or social excellence. And, you know, we can argue all day long about how stultifying, conformist, and hypocritical the 1940s and 50s were in America, and they certainly were all those things in some of their dimensions. But at the very least, a form of naked self-promotion in service of, uh, of vanglory and money was frowned upon. And, and wasn't overly prominent in American life and was, was quite distrusted. And certainly, I mean, you know, we're terrified of him having his finger on the button, but he never would have even... A, a major political party was a strong enough institution, almost like a body strong enough to fight a virus. It never would have let someone like Donald Trump anywhere near it, much less deep into its nominating process. So you could have had a Trump in the 20s or the Gilded Age as a kind of figure in business or finance, but you're, you're saying that that period someone couldn't have sort of crossed over the divide. Well, well, he didn't cross over the divide to politics in the 1980s. He crossed over this year. So in what way was Trump someone who you could only have come to, come to the fore in the 80s? Well, I mean, it's interesting what you say about the 20s. Well, remember the 20s as the era of the flapper and uh, the stock market bubble and on and on and on. But even then, you know, there was a sort of the Gilded Age in America came in a couple of different phases. The first phase was the proud Vulgarian 
who out of the American wilderness created a, a, a big business. And in its second phase was kind of the J.P. Morgan phase of the trusts. That, to me, was really defined by Morgan and the idea of a toss in like a big Hamburg hat, if that's what it's called, and practically a pseudo-aristocrat on the English model. I mean, it was kind of still reaching for an old-world patina of respectability. And in the 80s, there was this frenzy of self-making rooted mostly in high finance. I mean, Milken and the fictionalized version of both Milken and Ivan Bosky, Gordon Gecko, yeah. are in some ways really the representative figures of the decade and making money off of money, out of money. One charming thing I find about Donald Trump is that his fortune at some level is rooted in dealing with people on a face-to-face basis and building things. And the only moment that he takes pride that makes me feel some pride alongside him is when he says, oh, I, I got that building open two months early, right? And that, in the age of high finance, which has never fully gone away, even after the 08 crash, has, to me, an element of intrinsic dignity to it. Now, that is buried in all of the things we've come to know about his personality that, that are totally unsuitable, to my mind, to public life at all, but certainly to the presidency. And a number of the people who I've had on the show would tell you that he was a builder in the 1980s. He hasn't been a builder since the 1980s. He's been a brander of other people's other people's building. But I, I love that phrase you used, Steve, proud vulgarian, which I think really hits on something about Trump's appeal that maybe has something to be said for it. I mean, Trump is someone who he resists the idea that people should feel bad about not having taste, by not having certain kinds of credentials, by not having class. Uh, he defines class as something that is universally available to anybody who makes a lot of money. Mm. You know, it's funny. I recently reread the book, or in the reread, I should say, I, for, I finally read the book for the first time, What Makes Sammy Run, which, even though it's very Hollywood-centric, is absolutely a portrait of, of, of the man without conscience, right? He does everything in the service of himself. And in fact, that book is quite wise about Sammy Glick, this Hollywood agent who becomes a mogul. To the narrator of the book who's not Sammy Glick, there's something intri- like just deeply mysterious about a human being who doesn't seem to have an inner life. And in fact, the narrator keeps kind of lobbing these rhetorical grenades into what he thinks is the interior or conscience of Sammy Glick just to get him to react like a normal person would, to have shame, to have an ounce of shame. Now, I happen to think American life is not inherently that genteel. In fact, what we have is a pathological fear of gentility and femininity and domesticity that makes us constantly reach out, almost obsessively, to these figures who will break us out of our, our fear of gentility. If, if American life were hidebound, classbound, and crusted over with a kind of um, a wallflower gentility, then it seems to me an argument that Trump is a salutary figure would have better legs. But in fact, you know, I don't think of that as the peculiarly American disease. I think we, we have already a natural tra- attraction to Trump. I think he's a set of possibly healthy impulses taken to an absolutely pathological extreme. The person who can't feel shame and can't answer to his conscience, I mean... He's long past the point of being someone who admirably resists a finicky culture of prestige. So let's talk about Trump as a baby boomer, which is what you wrote about this week. I mean, when I think about the baby boomers, I think of these generational experiences of, of Woodstock, of protesting the Vietnam War, of the, of the free speech movement, of the civil rights movement, and so on and so on. And, and Trump doesn't seem to fit 
any part of that. Yet, as you point out, he was born in 1946. He is a baby boomer. Right. And, and so it, to the extent that I can follow my own argument, I think it goes as follows, <laughs> which is that, is that a generation is actually a very interesting concept. It entered sociology through Karl Mannheim. And Mannheim's point about it is still, I think, quite brilliant. He says a generation isn't produced biologically. The word obviously has its roots in biology. We generate new human beings, but they don't come out as a cohort. They don't all get born in the same year, even the same five years. What happens is a set of young people is a cohort, but becomes a generation poetically. They begin biologically, but they become a generation poetically. That is, a a set of young people has a a unified and event-based experience, usually rooted in warfare, right? And so the the French Revolution produced a generation. The American Revolution produced a generation. The uh, Second World War produced the greatest generation, under whose shadow the baby boomers grew up. The funny thing about the baby boomers is a war did produce the baby boomers, the Vietnam War, but it was a war that they, by and large, did not fight. Unlike the lost generation, right, you didn't have Hemingway could come back from World War I having had a defining experience, or Walt Whitman from the Civil War, defining experiences that gave them not only a moral authority to others, but I think an experiential authority within themselves. And the baby boomers didn't have this, on top of which they had been told, because they were such an unprecedentedly huge cohort, the baby boomers had been told they were a generation before they even understood what the word meant. They'd been invoked as a generation that might do something great. So they sort of have this weird existential deficit, which is, we invoke you as this thing that you are going to have to become. They go in search of that generational becoming, only to find a war that they then, in large numbers, evade. Actually, only a tiny portion of the baby boomers went to Vietnam smaller portion actually saw combat there. What quite a large, unprecedentedly large number of baby boomers did do is they went to college, and this gave them a student deferral. They were the first generation for whom getting a higher education was, in in fact, shelter from the generation-making experience of war. My argument is, and there's a lot actually of textual evidence uh, from the time, contemporary textual evidence that this is the case, is that they felt tremendous guilt about this. And so they turned their experience of college from one of class privilege into a kind of pseudo-warfare. And Trump himself uh, was the beneficiary of a student deferral about which he tends to either prevaricate or, or come out with outright howlers in which he says having attended a posh military academy makes him understand the military <laughs> more more than people who actually served. And then after my piece was filed, he, he uh, a video of him on Howard Stern show surfaced in which he says that uh, avoiding STDs, I'm paraphrasing now, was his own personal Vietnam. But even setting aside that preposterous uh, throwaway claim, you know, he, like many baby boomers, I mean, my argument is essentially they came of age for the first time in the 60s as early adults on college campuses upon which they fought this kind of pseudo-war against their own universities administration. They perfected a style of public theater. And then in the 80s, by the 80s, those same boomers hit their early peak earning years. And they begin to assume much more prominent roles in American life, especially in the glamour workplaces of Wall Street academia, Washington, D.C., and Hollywood. And it's funny that the in my book, what I discovered over and over again is that some of these quite primary figures of the baby boom generation use warfare as a metaphor for their quite mundane business activities all the time. I mean, Sun Tzu's The Art of War becomes a huge bestseller. Trump himself loves it and cites it. He cites it to this day. And um, I do think that that is rooted in 
the, the ways in which the student deferral came between the baby boomers and the traditional mode of becoming a generation in the poetic sense. But Steve, Steve let me challenge you a little bit on, on this thesis, because it's interesting what you say. A lot of people would argue that the formative experience for the baby boomers was not necessarily going to Vietnam. It was the conflict about whether we should be in Vietnam. But Trump didn't – he wasn't for the war. He wasn't against the war. He just dodged the draft. He just took advantage of his privilege. Similarly, you know, when you think about the other keystones of the generational experience, he didn't turn on his parents as hypocrites. He was a, a, an heir and a, and a son of a wealthy family who, who came into his inheritance when his parents were still alive. He didn't do drugs. He didn't have a kind of campus rebellion moment. I mean, all of the things that we think of as the baby boomer experience – he just didn't have much relationship with. Yeah, I, and I, I don't disagree with any of that. My, my argument really has two pieces. The first is that the campus movement in the 60s demonstrated to people who abstained from it, including, for example, Michael Milken, who was at Berkeley in the 60s. He had nothing to do with what we think of traditionally as the 60s at Berkeley. He pledged a fraternity. He was a business major. He began investing precociously in high-yield securities as an undergraduate. But he himself formulated his ambitions for Wall Street in explicitly countercultural terms. This happens over and over again. To me, one of the most important things and lasting things about the 60s on the baby boomers was it was simply a star system. It turned people like Tom Hayden from nobodies into huge stars, media stars virtually overnight. And that message wasn't lost on people like Donald Trump. And so the second part of my argument is in the 70s, these baby boomers graduate from the super symbolic stage set, which is the college campus, into an extremely uh, malaise-addled economy. And furthermore, they are part of the problem because the uh, uh, American economy in the 70s is beset with a labor glut to begin with, exacerbated by the en- entrance of uh, women into the labor force, but massively exacerbated by the sheer number of college graduates that are now flowing from Berkeley, Columbia, and thousands of other schools into the labor market. And it was a kind of a Hobbesian war of all against all from which a very select group of baby boomers emerged victorious and extremely arrogant about having emerged victorious from the decade. The funny thing about Trump was he emerged victorious from the decade because he had a massive trust fund. He was essentially given $40 million in the form of a a fraction of his father's real estate empire in 1976. And using that and uh, other social connections of his, you know, he parlayed it into the empire that he now has. But it seems to me The argument that I'm making is this massively compensatory, very martial rhetoric that reinforces, publicly reinforces over and over again one's own naked merits flies so in the face of all of the legs up that the baby boomers received. It it almost has to be read in psychological terms. And Trump is simply the most inflamed possible case. So, well, Steve, I think your piece is a really fresh and interesting way to look at Trump. And thanks for joining me on the show. Uh, thanks a lot, Jacob. It was a total pleasure. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. The show is produced by Henry Malofsky and Jason DeLeon, or Lion Jason DeLeon, as we like to call him here. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtide. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Special thanks to John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I wanted Indiana. 
I crushed Cruz. I crushed Kasich. They both dropped out. They're saying I'm the presumptive nominee. No way. I'm the nominee. Get used to it.